Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to, to Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is news editor Paul Wallbank. Hello, Viv. Deputy editor Josie Tutty. Hello. And our senior media reporter Zoe Samios. Hello. Plus, coming up later, Zoe and I will be chatting to Seven CEO Tim Warner, along with Chief Revenue Officer Kurt Burnett, Chief Digital Officer Clive Dickens, and Programming Director Angus Ross about recovering from being tabloid fodder. Um, look, there were some things that um, probably um, didn't exactly go our way. If the ball tampering scandal will lower cricket's ratings. I don't think the ball tampering um, incident is going to have any effect on ratings whatsoever. And if Seven really wants to hold on to Pacific magazines. We don't want to get rid of Pacific. That's um, a ridiculous notion. But first, the week's topics. Fairfax's final financial results under its own name. The Honey Badger proves a ratings hit for The Bachelor. Cricket to lead Foxtel's 4K channel launch. So this week, Fairfax released its final financial results as Fairfax should the proposed merger with Nine go through. So Fairfax brought in revenue of $1.688 billion during the 2018 financial year, which was a 3.1% drop from the prior corresponding period. All up in its statutory results, it had a net loss after tax of $63.8 million, compared to a net profit of $83.9 million last year. Fairfax attributed a lot of that to write-downs, including $36 million in restructuring and redundancy costs and a number of costs associated with closing regional titles, plus its separation from domain finally Going through, as always, Fairfax CEO Greg Highwood was keen to put a positive spin on things, instead focusing on his favourite thing, which is underlying results, which excludes those significant items. So, Zoe, you've been watching Fairfax and print media and, and all things Fairfax 9 for quite a while now. How do you think this is for Fairfax's final farewell? I actually don't think it's the worst thing in the world and maybe that's an unpopular opinion. But I was looking back on the results from previous years and and the story for Fairfax for, oh God, as long as I can remember has been redundancies, restructuring costs um, and, and overall just basically trying to cut down the costs of how the business operates. I think the main point to make here is that even though uh, revenue was down year on year, Greg Highwood is tightening that decline in revenue. Um, the gap is not as big as the year prior, which was a 5% um, loss compared to FY16. So while it may not be the most positive result from a media owner, I think overall for, by Fairfax media standards, it's not the worst result that they've had. And Zoe, you alluded to lots of sort of cost-cutting exercises in previous years and Highwood was certainly keen to say that those seem to be paying off. So there was rounds of redundancies last year where $30 million was stripped from the business, which was about 125 full-time equivalent roles. I think it's really easy when we're talking about this though to forget that that's real people. You know, when you hear Greg Highwood talking about it, he talks about big decisions, addressing legacy cost issues, structural change. He talks about stripping costs from the business and how look how positive that is. That's a lot of people who've lost their jobs. And I noticed in the comment section of our various articles about the Fairfax results, people were sort of saying, how much more can Fairfax cut? You know, the reason that they're still profitable is that they've slowed the decline, as you talked about, but only by ripping things out of the business. Do you think they've finally stopped ripping things out of the business? Well, I think they've done it to the point that like you said, they're, they're, they're stretched. You pretty much can't cut any more journalists. I think the last set of redundancies almost compromised quality within the, the Fairfax Media Masthead, some of them including the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the Australian Financial Review. I think a, a good indicator that they're probably done is that they are um, looking to merge with Nine. And 
you know, I think in the end, potentially that's a good thing for Fairfax. We don't want to lose more journalists. Maybe this is the way that we can avoid those large um, redundancy rounds again. Now, of course, it's one of the the main concerns that were coming from a lot of Fairfax journalists when the merger was an- announced was that um, there would be job losses on both sides from Fairfax newsrooms and nine newsrooms. Now, Highwood has come out and said that, no, they will not be merging the newsrooms because they are two very different entities. Um, but it will be interesting to see what happens and if there are perhaps job losses to come that they're just sort of skating around. Yeah, well, look... Uh- all media CEOs have known have been known to promise things will never happen only for them to happen. Indeed, Nine had said in the past that it would not buy Fairfax and look where we are now. Uh, Anthony Catalano had previously said that Domain would not list separately on the ASX and then that happened. So I guess that's a headline grabber for Highwood that we'll see if it actually stands the test of time. He said that TV journalism is way too different from a 24-hour news website and a print media production to merge those resources. But, Paul, how did the Australian Metro Media Division, which is uh, the Australian Financial Review, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Age, Brisbane Times, all those Metro mastheads, how did they do in these Fairfax results? Not very well, I'm afraid, Viv. They, uh, the revenues were down for advertising by 10%, nearly 10% and by subscriptions by 3%. So that's really not a good indicator there. And you've got to think that will Nine really want to take that on? I, I'm going to be a little bit pessimistic here compared to Zoe's optimism and just uh, suggest that we may well see, should the merger go through, the private equity coming in and taking the, that Fairfax asset off their hands down the track. And Fairfax was, of course, keen to highlight Domain's results and those of Stan, which it speculated that that's mainly why Nine bought Fairfax anyway. Domain suffered a $6.2 million net loss after tax, but again, that's largely due to their separation costs and I think both Nine and Fairfax see huge upside for Domain. The Stan figures weren't really broken out, but they did say that they've sort of stemmed the decline and and they think it will break even by 2019. Zoe, do you think that we will be talking about Stan being profitable anytime soon? Again, the optimism is going to come in here. I think definitely yes. And I was actually speaking to someone today about this. You know, Australia is a place where two kind of work in the market there's always a dominant player and one behind but the one that can stay healthy Netflix is an international player that is in this market but what I've definitely noticed in the last sort of year maybe a bit longer is a massive pickup from the consumer side with Stan I wouldn't be surprised if it might not be as soon as they're saying it will be I wouldn't be surprised if it broke even or became profitable uh, in the near future So speaking of all things streaming and content, the Honey Badger proved a hit for 10, pulling in 940,000 Metro viewers in the preliminary figures. Now that's the highest for a premiere of The Bachelor, but Zoe, did did it beat Sophie Monk's season of The Bachelorette. No, it did not. It was very, very close. Last year, Sophie Monk's season launched with a metro audience of 951,000. I think when you look at the actual people surveyed within Oztam, which provides these figures, it's two or three people, actual people different. But what we can see is it was very close. And I think the interesting thing to point out about uh, in terms of similarities between Sophie Monk and Nick Cummins is that they are both well-known personalities, which seems to be the thing that tends trialing now as opposed to someone that has been on a previous series of The Bachelor Bachelorette or that's kind of, you know, like Georgia Love was, a, a journalist that was working hard in Tasmania. It seems that they're trying to do the big personalities who are interesting and hoping that the audience will come and watch what they're like when they're trying to fall in love. So is this what 10 needed right now? Because I know that within the past week or so, they've had some pretty shocking ratings. They have. And I remember earlier this year, I thought they were shocking and they were only at a 10 share. But uh, on Sunday night, they went to a 7.5. Not their worst this year. I think the Royal Wedding was their worst. And there are a couple of other outliers. But When you say Royal Wedding, it's because they were the only free-to-air <laughs> network not <laughs> exactly. to screen the Royal exactly. Wedding. Exactly. <laughs> so, and I, and it, it's not an average night. But Sunday night, if you think about the ratings numbers, which I look at every single day, that's when you get your mass audiences. 
it was surprising then that last Sunday 10's main channel share was a 7.5. You know, there's been a lot of criticism of Pilot Week, which is about to launch this Sunday. Street Smart, which premiered last Sunday night, uh, not last Saturday night, sorry, two Sunday nights ago, has been moved from its time slot as well. So they have been struggling with ratings. This is probably the hurrah that they really, really needed, especially given Pilot Week's launching next week. And Josie, I don't know how familiar you are with the Honey Badger, but do you think (laughs) that this season of The Bachelor is going to maintain its ratings or do you think it was just a curiosity factor seeing people tune in? I think it's got some legs to it. Um, We'll obviously just have to keep watching those ratings. It's probably quite likely that they're going to be able to maintain the interest. I mean, everyone I know in the office is talking about it. Everyone seems to love it online as far as I can see. So yeah, I think they might finally have found something that works for 10. And finally, Foxtel is set to launch Australia's first ever 4K channel. So, Paul, for all the technophobes out there, including me, break it down for me. What is 4K? So this is ultra high definition. So this is four times more resolution than high definition. So really that's the that's the simplified version of it. A lot of the TV – well, the TV stations haven't been prepared to show it because of the bandwidth it takes up. Originally the whole idea of the NBN was that that would – push down, which is interesting because Fox Telling going to push us over by satellite, which uh, Patrick Delaney's comments about being able to deliver a great signal across satellite to the whole nation, really going to be a test of that infrastructure, I think. I'm starting to get some Optus vibes. Um, I'm, I'm, worrying, I'm worrying for them a little bit here, but we'll see. As in you think it's not going to work, <laughs> the infrastructure is going to collapse? Well, we've, we've seen this before. We've had promises, big promises of new technology. It's all going to work. It's all going to be fine. And well, look what happened to Optus. And there's another problem. There's another problem with it too. Is that is this a product that people really need? Do they really want to watch cricket in ultra high definition? That's what I was going to ask you, Paul. How much of a difference will it genuinely make to my viewing experience? I'm not currently watching my TV thinking, "Oh my god, that's so out of focus. It's so terrible. I can't see anything." I remember back, I think it was in the 90s, I had a VHS of the BBC show Walking with Dinosaurs and I remember thinking there's no way that technology and animation and visuals can ever get better than this. And look, I know uh, in hindsight I was wrong, but how much better do we need it to be? I saw an ad the other day about why I should spend thousands and thousands of dollars on a television and it was because 4K should we just wait for the prices to come down? We should, but this is one of the interesting things with that whole retailing space is that they push those, so get a VHS video recorder, then get a DVD video recorder, uh, get an HD television. That's been the model that's driven Harvey Norman and Godfrey's and all those other retailers for decades. Does everyone here have a 4K TV? Because I definitely don't. And on top of that, I think you need an IQ4 box as well, don't you? You do need an IQ4 box as well. So there's quite a bit of an investment for consumers there. But there's another aspect to this as well, and that's the reliance on cricket there's both channel 7 and foxtel have got a big reliance this summer on cricket and there's going to be a lot of demands there cricket's really going to have to come up to the crease pardon the pun to um to deliver for both foxtel and 7 network because they are uh, they are staking a lot of on this uh, on this season the other thing that i'd add to that as well which i had the the privilege of sort of going down before the big launch uh, of Foxtel 4K and, and speaking to Patrick Delaney, who's the CEO of Foxtel. And I did ask him at the time, well, what's your what's your aim here? Like, what do you want from this? Because I can think of my friends who are Foxtel subscribers or, or my family that are, that, yeah, this will be a great novelty if they've already got a subscription, they get it free of charge. In terms of getting new subscribers in, I don't see it as probably the biggest draw card. I think their sports offering in itself is probably the draw card that Foxtel has said they're going to focus on and should focus on. But I don't think improving the quality of it is going to make me go, gee, I didn't have that before and now I'm going to buy a subscription to Foxtel. It doesn't feel like it's going to do that. Patrick has said that the aim is to you know, feed the loyal customers as well as attract new ones. I think the loyal customers are going to be very happy in terms of attracting anyone new. I don't know if this is going to work. And that's going to be a big challenge for Foxtel because ahead of their planned IPO later this year, they really want to get those revenue numbers and more importantly, subscriber numbers up. And in the News Corp annual report last week um, uh, released in New York, those numbers were down. Uh, The average 
revenue per user was down 3%. Subscriber numbers were down 2% for Foxtel. So this is not good science for Foxtel. Well, stay tuned to hear what CEO of Seven West Media, Tim Warner, thinks of the upcoming cricket season, along with many other things. But for now, team, I will let you guys get back to the news desk. Thanks, Viv. Thanks, Thank Viv. Thank All right, welcome everyone to this week's Mumbrella Cast. I am joined by many people today, including senior media reporter Zoe Samios and what feels like everyone from Seven except Kerry Stokes, perhaps. I have Tim Warner, CEO, Angus Ross, Director of Network Programming, Kurt Burnett, Chief Revenue Officer, and Clive Dickens, Chief Digital Officer. So welcome everybody uh, Tim, I might throw to you first. Nine and Fairfax have been in the news heaps lately and I just know that even though we've got so much to talk about, everyone will want your thoughts and everyone's been asking me what's Seven going to do. Is it just business as usual for you? It pretty much is um, business as usual for us. I mean, obviously any move of um, this size will create opportunities. And uh, our team is going to be focused on making the most of um, those opportunities. But for us, yeah, it's it's pretty normal. Um, we'll continue to look at what else um, we might be able to do. Um, there's been a fair bit of speculation about um, News Limited and Seven. Um, but look, we're already doing things with News Limited um, with their very strong mastheads. And I don't think it's absolutely necessary to uh, have a corporate transaction for those sort of um, connections to deepen. And look, it's mid-2018 now and we're moving towards the tail end of the year. Uh, Seven had a really interesting and mixed sort of 2016 and 2017 the the network was hitting the headlines for some of the wrong reasons at the tail end of, of 2016 and the beginning of 2017. And that somewhat distracted from the media's reporting of perhaps how well Seven was doing in other areas. Talk to me about your successes at the beginning of 2017. Well, we've always had a um, situation where um, the first part of our year has been strong. Um, we've built a really strong foundation there with My Kitchen Rules. Um, and having had a look at the cast for next year, it looks like it's going to be strong again. Um, look, there were some things that um, probably um, didn't exactly go our way. That happens. Um, and I think I've been on record as saying that the back half of 2017 was something that um, – we weren't proud of. Um, it was a performance that we found unacceptable. We set about devising a plan to address that and we're seeing that plan now. What we couldn't have known when we were uh, coming up with that plan was that we would also have the cricket um, and that is going to further strengthen the back half of 2018. Certainly the front half of 2018 has been extraordinary for Seven. Um, and I think it's kind of been lost, actually, a little bit. Uh, but this is the highest share that we've ever had, in fact, that any network has ever had to this point in a rating season. These are the highest shares of key demographics that we've ever had as a network to this point of the season. Um, having said that, we're not doing cartwheels in the car park. We do not do victory laps at halftime. Um, we realise the toughest part of our season is to come. Um, we're very focused on performing as well as we possibly can right through to the end of the year. So, Angus, I'll bring you in here. What lessons did you learn from that rougher end to 2017 and how will you improve things for what's coming up this year? I think what a situation we found ourselves in was that we just didn't have enough uh, options um, and when you combine that with uh, a couple of underperforming programs, uh, you don't get left in a, uh, a pretty space. So the planning into uh, rectifying matters for 2018 obviously started uh, during that period. Um, 
Yeah, we just had to make sure we had more options, particularly in the um, the uh, back half of uh, of the year from from July onwards. That was kind of in twenty seventeen, where where some pretty ordinary uh, numbers started. So, but those year on year improvements are what we were we were looking to uh, to have, and uh, you know, so far uh, I feel that we have. Um, delivered in that. And I guess on the oh I've got a bit of a cough today. On the on the topic of new shows, obviously we can talk to a lot of your successes earlier this year. The staples like MKR yep. and stuff always do great. We had oh let me think of top of head Dance Boss, which did reasonably well I think. Single Wives, we had Spartan as well. What's your sort of thoughts around premiering new shows or launching a new show format? Because I know that every other network, including yourselves, have had these programs for years and years and years that have worked. I feel like it's almost a struggle to start launching new ones. Look, it, it's certainly getting tough, particularly trying to launch shows in in eight thirty or or nine o'clock uh, slots. New shows, in particular, you know, there are a few staples in those uh, in those slots, and you know, the, I guess the the outlier for us is is the Good Doctor. Uh, that's that is the number one show on television for the year. Um, you know, a US drama that everybody. Said it had its day in in this market, and that is a eight thirty slash nine o'clock show. Um, but look, this year I think all, all networks have have struggled to get um, uh, on you know those those big sort of numbers for for new properties in in that slot. It's particularly hard when you are trying to launch a brand new format that you've created yourself. That's the hardest job of all. Uh, as opposed to picking up an existing format from overseas where a lot of learnings have already happened. But, um, you know, we, we do have a track record in format creation and, um, and being able to launch shows. So look, we, we, we just, we keep persisting, but it's, it's, it's tougher. I think you've got to stick with shows yeah. longer, um, than you used to. So Correct. your observation spot on it is harder to get something off the deck, but, um, the rewards are there if you do. And in our case, um, because of Seven Studios, if it's something that we have originated and therefore own and control ourselves, those rewards are, are really strong. And I, I think we also we have to run a, a very different lens over over those numbers, as we've all been been discussing. People are are choosing to consume this content in in ways that are very different to you know even a year or so ago. Um, so we need to look at those numbers across all screens um, and over a certain time period to, to really gauge the success of a show. And look, it's become a bit of a running joke in the industry that Spartan was actually a genius move from Seven. Of, because, of course it was. Because it made audiences <laughs> tire of the format and, and thus reduce Nine's Australian Ninja Warrior ratings. Are we just sort of retrospectively making that narrative work or do you think it actually did ultimately have an impact on no, we've got success? More, we've got more Spartan on the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. Uh, look, look uh, Spartan, Spartan was a show that, that, that we were happy with and when, when the premiere number um, came out, uh, look, it was, it was okay, but we were a bit surprised. So, uh, look, uh, perhaps with those big physical game shows, uh, the numbers for for Ninja uh, last year may have been the anomaly and the numbers this year um, may be more in line with that sort of uh, style of programming. I mean, it's, the numbers last year certainly took everyone by surprise and made everybody re-examine things, but, you know, maybe, the, maybe where it's settled this year is, um, is more around the mark. What's the sort of sweet spot for you? You've obviously been a programmer for some time. What kinds of shows are you seeing work in, in this market now? Look, I, I, you still have to be—you still have to be very broad. We've always skewed um, skewed very female in in the majority of our programming, and sometimes when we, um, you know, we still call ourselves roast chook, and when we veer away from that, uh, we don't always get the uh, the results we expect. We're a we're a big, broad network driven by by total people and people twenty five. 54, and that's the sort of programming that, that resonates as opposed to, I guess, too cool for school. Not cool enough for school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what, has, what would both of you say has been Seven's biggest programming success this year? Well, to me, I think it's been the Commonwealth Games. I think that was the circuit breaker. Um, and if you have a look at what's happened since then, we're able to, well, one, I think, produce um, – a, a spectacular 
coverage of the Commonwealth Games, which really resonated with uh, audiences right across Australia, and then to harness the momentum that we were able to generate in those 10 days or so and really uh, ride it on through. And we were able to um, reinvigorate My Kitchen Rules, launch shows um, out the back of that, and, and also not just our general entertainment shows, but, you know, have a look at Sunrise um, and also Seven News, particularly on the East Coast. Um, the performance of those programs and um, that sort of programming since then has been super strong. So that's what uh, I would say. Yeah, and I, th- I think the other thing to look at uh, this year with us, particularly when we're talking about audiences, you know, there's a lot of always looking at the uh, the main channel is that we are a suite of channels. Uh, we're aiming for as many eyeballs as possible. And what we did last year was we made a very concerted decision in um, targeting Seven Mate uh, to be the number one multi-channel. Uh, part of that um, involved going and picking up a bunch of uh, programming for from uh, 20th Century Fox in light of the collapse of their arrangement with 10. That included their full movie library, uh, things like The Simpsons, which has really helped us reinvigorate shows like Family Guy and so forth on Mate, but has also given Mate these massive Sunday night movie results with the, this sort of library. And combined that with uh, a lot of their local um, commissions like Outback Truckers, salvage squad those sort of things it's really driven mate to record levels um, in 2018 but our combined multi-channels have a distinct advantage over our competitors which is which is certainly also um, helping drive our performance uh, across this year but I don't care about that at Mumbrella mate. <laughs> yeah. excuse report, me excuse me only report seven the it's not just about, I, it's I not will just look about at, main will, channel. Outback yeah. Truckers performs exceptionally well. It's one of the it, when it's on, it is a number one multi-channel. I I look every single day at the multi-channels, and I know that you had a six point five share on Seven Mate today. So yeah. yes, thanks. It thanks is to Kingsman. <laughs> Kingsman, always another delivers. Fox movie. <laughs> and you alluded to it before. You've obviously got the cricket coming up, and you've unveiled your plans for that. Talk the listeners through what they can look forward to in terms of Seven's cricket offering and, and how that will really shape your summer programming? Yeah, I feel as though um, there's been a tendency to underestimate the magnitude of, of the cricket. Um, it is not two weeks um, of a sport in January. It's four months uh, and over 400 hours of live sport. Um, inside there, there are going to be 13 days when we actually start with cricket at 9.30 or 10 in the morning, go through until 6 o'clock, break for 7 news, and then start another cricket match at 7 o'clock. So 13 mega days. Um, you know, there's over 40 nights of prime time action. Um, I just feel as though, yeah, the market hasn't quite appreciated just how much cricket um, there is going to be and also it's, it's going to be quite different. For the first time we've got the two most popular forms of cricket on the one network. So when we used to watch um, Test Cricket on Nine and, and you know we're not disrespectful at all of what Nine or Ten did with cricket but if I was watching Test Cricket on Nine you would never ever hear their commentators utter one word about the Big Bash. Now, that is officially not going to be the case on Seven. We're going to be using both forms of cricket um, to promote one another, and and I think that's going to be extraordinarily powerful. So do you think the market's just not appreciating the cricket because we're a bit too distracted by the ball tampering scandal. Do you think that maybe the timings tarnished that a little bit so that coverage sort of became intersected with Cricket Australia's problems or why do you think people haven't understood what's in front of you? I just think they they haven't really um, thought about what it means to have so much of the sport and the two best forms of the game on the one network. I don't think the ball tampering um, incident is going to have any effect on ratings whatsoever. Anyone who tells me that something that happened in uh, Cape Town six months ago or, or whatever is going to affect what sized audience tunes in for the Brisbane Heat versus the Perth Scorchers, they're kidding themselves. 
it's just it's not going to have any effect at all. In fact, I actually think it's going to build even more curiosity combined with the fact that it's an all-new um, approach to broadcasting cricket. It's an all-new commentary team. Um, I, I would say that, that interest is probably going to be heightened more than anything else. I think it's important to add, across summer, and it's been proven, there are only two certainties. That's news and sport. And, you know, we're going to, if you don't have other of those, you're going to be in real trouble. And we are, you know, changing the approach by which we schedule the cricket where it's going to get the advantage of Australia's number one news service pumping into those, yeah, that's those, those night matches. Yeah, the Big Bash, I think, had, um, you know, questionable leading um, on 10. It's going to have the number one show in the country, Seven News, leading into it on Seven. Um, you know, I think that's a big factor as well. So, Tim, speaking of ratings, I was at the Think TV Advertising Week dinner a while back and you did mention up on stage that you think we need to move on from those preliminary overnight numbers that come through and then the trade press push out quite quickly, your argument sort of being that it's painting an inaccurate picture of how many people are actually tuning in because of so many catch-up options and, and whatnot. So talk talk to us more about that. What is your key problem with overnight ratings? Well, I just think they're misleading. They don't um, they don't represent what the true audience of a show is. One of the things about the television rating system is it's too good. Um, and can, compared to what's going on in other media. So we need to we need to make it a diary system like radio. Perhaps. Well, I'll tell you what, that would... I wouldn't recommend that. You would, you would get some pretty handy numbers. <laughs> I'm telling you that for sure. But it is, it is too good, the television ratings um, system. It's so honest compared to every other form of measurement. Um, and I just... It's a personal view um, that overnight ratings, they don't really, as I say, represent the true audience for a show. Have a look at a show like Home and Away, which on overnight numbers is not as high as it once was, but I can see and feel and you just know that the, actually the number of people watching that show is the same as it ever was. It's just that they are watching it when they feel like it um, in a lot of cases. So th- that was my point um, with that is that you know, I just think overnight uh, numbers, they give you an indication um, but it's not a true number. It's not not a, a measure of the popularity of a show. So, yeah, I would definitely favour the introduction of overnight shares so you still get to know which um, network has the most number of people watching it. Um, and then when you get a truer indication, release the audience number then. So, Kurt, what are your views on the overnight ratings system? I think Tim's made an excellent point around the accuracy of OSTAM and that is that it is the most accurate measurement in media as we speak and per capita OSTAM is the most effective in the world. And in fact, it's about to get even more accurate when we introduce uh, VPM demos launching in the next few weeks and VOZ, Virtual OZ, uh, allowing us to overlay data into the uh, OSTAM metrics. Where... Tim is absolutely right, is around the idea of how the content should be viewed, not just purely in an overnight fashion, but over 7, 28 days uh, in catch-up and how it is seen in a BVOD environment and, in fact, even in a social environment. You know, what are, what are the factors that are happening? Content, at the end of the day, is about engagement. Engagement means a whole lot more than what overnight ratings bring. It is the currency and uh, it is... Uh, a good currency, but I think it can evolve and it will evolve and it is evolving. Would you say then that the issue isn't, it might ha- perhaps be the reporting of it? Because I know that when I talk about Nielsen as well, there's a lot of numbers we don't get. So every day when we will get Austam figures, um, we're only given it a limited amount on what we can report on. Do you think the way that the media has to report on figures and judge a show needs to change or do you think it's actually the numbers itself? Well, I... I believe it's actually an education. It is. It is a very complex world that we live in now in terms of metrics, and there's so many various uh, people out there making claims, some of them um, not particularly truthful and not very helpful to the idea that we're trying to get to the single source of truth. So 
with that in mind, we need to do a better job, and that's something that Think TV and working with Oztam is is doing. You'll see a lot more of that around the education of what uh, constitutes an audience over a period of time as a result of a piece of content being created, uh, professional produced content from a uh, uh, long form video into BVOD. So, if we can share those numbers more, talk about the important numbers inside that. And for you know that that's that's onus upon us as much as it is on people to report on that, and importantly how it's then traded in with our you know our advertising agency friends. You know they have to also use that as a currency the way that it, um, that it's been designed to do. And currently, for instance, VPM is not uh, a currency, but it should be, and it will be very soon, as we hope. And Kurt. Tim alluded earlier that you have had a record-breaking year in terms of the ratings that you're bringing in and just how strong the start to the year has been. How has that fed into revenue? Is Are you having a similarly fantastic year? Well, I'm very proud to say that we have had 22 consecutive halves of revenue share dominance. We didn't July to December, but we have gone back to that January June this year. So we hit a 39.91. Uh, that's not the magic 40, but it's damn close. So, uh, you know, uh, we, yes, we are monetizing that in the way that um, we had hoped that we would. And what this half does, as Angus made the point earlier, we have had this record share, these record ratings, excluding the Com Games, which, again, is a bit of a nonsense thing in itself. The fact is we paid for an event, a fantastic piece of content, it should be recognised for the job that it did for the business and so for the So why do we exclude it? Why is that common practice? Well, Leverage. <laughs> <laughs> what he said. <laughs> well, everyone will bang on about the fact was the Com Games worth it. So if you can say it's excluding that you're still performing, um, it's a good story both ways, whichever way you spin it. It, it is. But I, I guess what they're trying to do from an, uh, from an agency perspective is uh, to get some benchmarking back to what is normality. But what's interesting is for us next year and why we believe we can dominate again into the next half is at the end of the day, this game is about delivering great content that delivers big audience through great connection. We delivered that for the front half just gone. Uh, the same time next year, whilst we won't have the Commonwealth Games or the Winter Olympics, what we will have is an amazing result of the ratings that came out of the Commonwealth Games to do what it did to MKR, another fantastic year of MKR coming. We will have the cricket going through not just January but through January and February and that's going to link up with uh, um, some new shows we'll be announcing um, at the upfronts but also the shows we know well like My Kitchen Rules News is going fantastically well. The AFL will come a bit earlier. There's there's a whole lot of things which highlights and we've done a lot of work on this and uh, we will be replicating the same sort of numbers that we did Jan to June this year into next year. And at the end of the day, you know, that's what advertisers want to know, really, and agencies, is this notion of surety. Um, you know, consistency is a tough thing to do, but surety, well, that's powerful. You know, that's, that's really something that people want to know. What am I going to get and who do I go to get that from? And we believe that we've got a story not just into, you know, next six months, but out to 2020. You know, we're planning out to the Tokyo Olympics next. Uh, in fact, we're having a number of conversations as we speak about that. And in terms of, I mean, we've spoken about it before, so you're trading on the numbers from the last half last year, which obviously it's going to take some time to, to win back that. But in terms of advertising sentiment, are people feeling comfortable with a whole new set of shows again? Are they feeling confident that you'll be able to to deliver what they're after? Yes. I, I think at the end of the day, the jury's probably still out on a few shows and that goes across the board this game is about you know hits and not everyone always has hits you know I, I think now you'll start to see um over the next few months a couple of other shows that we hope to pop that's certainly going to help deliver that um surety that we're talking of but certainly going into the front half next year we've got a um, few bankable shows through there and of course uh, without putting too fine a point on it but it needs to be made and that is the cricket and the way that the cricket works from the uh, AFL, cricket, horse racing, those three sp content spines give an enormous opportunity to uh, pop new shows using that audience that we have and the new audience that we're going to get from the cricket for that matter. So, you know, I, I think there's a genuine hope that um, and, and desire for the networks to launch shows. And, and even we spoke about Ninja before, that – 
shows, the Commonwealth Games, um, the Winter Olympics, um, the Good Doctor, it shows that television can actually produce a huge audience. The idea that, you know, the TV can't do that anymore is simply not true. Well, I know that Kim Portrait, who's the CEO of Think TV, which is the industry body designed to explain to brands just how powerful television is as an advertising platform. So Seven, Nine, Ten and Foxtel, MCN are involved in Think TV and, and she has a bit of a catchphrase that TV isn't dying, TV is having babies. So why is the narrative persisting then that television is dying when all of you keep making so much noise about the fact that it's not? Uh Ulterior motives. Yeah, I think the market's um, growing um, again. Um, And, you know, I was joking about our television measurement system being too good, too honest. But I actually think that's beginning to work for us um, now and that we're seeing a swing away from other media uh, who have been called out. Um, You know, they've been asked questions about the measurement of their work, who's doing the measuring, um, and just how real those measurements are. And I think that is beginning to work for television. Um, So there's that, which is, I think, um, sort of exterior to our industry. And then there's the actual medium itself. I, I, I think the more audiences fragment, the more valuable and powerful television becomes because it becomes the only place where you can mass an audience and then deliver them a really powerful message simultaneously. And that actually changes people's behaviour. It changes their decisions. And if it's changing a purchasing decision, that becomes something that um, that our customers are very interested in paying for. So does TV need to make itself cool again in a way? So many people just love to talk about how cool and trendy Netflix is and, and often use that as the example of, of television's death. Well, you know, I just watch Netflix. I can binge on Netflix. Mm. It's not cool in some circles to admit that you sit down and watch television at night. Is it television's job then to turn that around? Is there something it can do to make that moment sexy again? Yeah, I, I, it's a really good observation and I think that's absolutely true. TV became uncool. It became uncool to create TVCs or an unpopular decision from creatives to be saying, hey, let's make a television commercial. But what is happening, it feels like is happening now, as the numbers start to lead the conversation and the decision about what is effectiveness, what does it really look like? It's starting, the coolness is starting to come back. It feels that way. It's still not cool to sit down and watch a, uh, a, um, series of home and away on seven plus you know but it should be it should be in the same way and the numbers are certainly showing that that to watch seven plus home and away and seven plus uh is doing similar numbers than you know a whole multitude of shows on netflix but we seem to be missing that point in the market and it is up to us to to use your words to bring that coolness back but i tell you what what is uncool is when you change your marketing strategy and your uh kpis on brand performance and and results go through the floor, that's uncool. And that's what's going to bring coolness back to TV. Something Kurt was talking about was changing viewer habits. Um, Clive, I thought it's probably best to start talking with you on this. I've always thought that, you know, Seven is a you know primarily a television company um, or it was once and you've got all these other assets as well. Do you think, you know, it's not about making something cool necessarily but it's actually about the brand, the Seven brand itself and all the, the brands that sort of sit within it. Is that more powerful in the end when you've got these viewers changing um, the way they consume different things? And brands are incredibly important. You know, consumers need uh, simplification around aggregation all the time. We only have a certain amount of time. We want to fill it wisely and brands provide that opportunity. And, you know, what um, Netflix has done is it given you that impression that if you spend some time with them, they'll fill that time wisely. But when you point out that the fact that 7 million Australians use an SVOD service in June, and 7 million Australians used a BVOD service in June. So back to your earlier question, that's a story that we can tell better, which is the equal amount of Australians use broadcast video on demand from the free-to-air industry than they use the whole of the SVOD as well. 
But the perception is very different to that. And, and that's obviously partly because that BVOD audience isn't measured in the same way as those overnight readings that Tim was talking about. And we've got to do a better job explaining that. I think the education piece is an interesting one. Um, obviously, you guys launched your broadcast video on demand or relaunched your broadcast video on demand platform 7 Plus earlier this year. Um, what have sort of the results been from that? How have you seen that grow since I, I know that we talked about previously the plus 7 to 7 Plus, but Obviously, there's a lot more to that. What sort of changes in audience consumption have you seen since you kind of went to market, educated them and told them, hey, this is what we've got? Yeah, so we um, Plus 7 was always the market-leading service and and pretty disruptive for consumers to move from a service for them that worked um, through to a new service, which was you know, obviously better or arguably better. But of course, there was we needed to make sure there was a consumer benefit in that change. Because predominantly it was a corporate change, not a, you know, so therefore how do we make it a consumer benefit? So by focusing on live and long form, putting in exclusive content, bringing us to a wider set of devices and providing content to allow them to spend their time even better with our content that was the focus. So it's sort of six months into that journey. Um, what's fascinating is if you look at the, the VPM shares, which is the equivalent of BVOD minutes, both the leading networks are around about the 30 share of the market. So interestingly, we are quite competitive against each other in that, in that market. We both have around a 30 share. Um, certain days, certain weeks, certain months, um, nine or seven can lead that race, but we're now talking about content. So what we're trying to do now is to focus on growing the market. I think it's not so uh, useful for us to spend all this time thinking about the zero-sum game of share online because the zero-sum game of share is actually share that I want to get from YouTube, share I want to get from Facebook, share I need to get back from Netflix and share we need to protect from Disney and HBO and everybody else that's coming over the hill. So what you're finding is that uh, we're starting to really have a bit more of a sophisticated conversation about our point of difference in the market. Who are we appealing to? What shows do we have? What how can we work together to grow the BVOD market for audiences and also to grow the revenue market and get even better effectiveness for our clients and advertisers? So hopefully we'll see further collaboration that we already enjoy with things like Freeview over the coming years. And because really the real opportunity is to grow the market and actually keep Australian content in Australia and keep investing in Australian stories rather than um, seeing so much of that money been siphoned out of our economy, which is not good for Australia. Now, Nine's uh, streaming service, Nine Now, requires people to sign in. And my understanding, Zoe, is that Sevens doesn't. It's optional. Optional. So what, why have you chosen that approach? Why don't you want to force people to sign in? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think the, our, our, our research indicates that consumers are very, very focused on their privacy. And just simply saying that we want your personal details because we can is not a strategy. The consumers want to know what am I getting in return for my personal details. We've had a, a period of time when consumers have lost a lot of trust about putting personal details into a website or an app or a product and realizing that those details end up in loads of different places. So there's a trust issue that has to be maintained. And consumers want to understand what they're getting back in return. So what we've done with our membership is make sure that people who are signed in over the coming months will actually get additional features additional benefits, and additional content, which is a much more reasonable value exchange from we will ask you to sign in because we can. So what happens when you ask people to sign in because you can without giving them any of these benefits is they're inclined then to use much less accurate data on themselves. They'll use uh, secondary and tertiary email addresses. They'll actually use data points that are very hard to verify. An example of that is that my daughter is a very active social media user and she is, um, uh, she is married to her female best friend on social network and she finds that absolutely hilarious. All her friends spend a huge amount of time lying about their, their details. They get served ads then by social networks because of the details that they've served. And that's because they really don't have a relationship with those brands. We've got to do better than that. So we spend a lot more time under the hood, making sure that there is an optional relationship with 7 Plus, which is anonymous, 
And if people want to become a member, we're giving them real exclusive benefits and hopefully having a, therefore, a deeper relationship with those consumers. So when we talk about, uh, and it feels like it's like this sly undergoing battle between nine and seven on the issue of addressability, when we're talking about that is the argument then that the people that do provide you with details are the people that they say they are um, with 100% of the, you're more likely basically to have definitely a 23-year-old single woman than say someone that according to her Facebook page is married to her best friend and is actually 35 or something like that. So it's not just about accuracy, it's also about how engaged the consumer is as well. Everyone around this table knows about the different ways that we, you'll sign into something. So, for example, you will sign in using whatever email you can at a shopping center Wi-Fi or a hotel Wi-Fi. And if the last time that anyone did that, you'll know which email or which version of you you signed in on. And versus the information you sign in on your bank, right, between the data that you give your bank through to the data you give your shopping center, there is a myriad of different relationships, but it's all user-identical data. But the only the, the top end of that data is most useful to advertisers because if you're going to start to personalize advertising and measure outcomes, you really need to know who your advertising is being seen by. And that's what we're holding ourselves accountable to that level. And another part of your business that we haven't even touched on yet is the printing and publishing side of things uh, with Pacific magazines. So what's your digital strategy there? Because I understand with the magazine industry changing so much, you, you must have had to make some changes there as well. Yeah, so we have two very large digital publishing businesses in Seven West Media WA that has the, the Western Australian and Sunday Times and its respective sites of Perth Now and the West.com.au. And Pacific magazines that also have a, a dozen very, very fast-growing premium brand environments. So those two um, st- uh, publishing stacks come under uh, my uh, joint co-responsibility with the CEOs of those two businesses. And we have a, a combination of strategy around swim one audiences. So if you're pay- buying a newspaper or if you're uh, logging online for a magazine subscription or you're enjoying a footy game, then effectively you're coming through to the swim one audience profile. We're also sharing technology stacks as well. And if you take an example of last weekend with the incident over in the AFL with the Gaffit, we're also sharing content right across the business as well, using this incredible access on food and fashion and lifestyle and sport to actually bring the whole wealth of published content to our audience. And the last big piece of that jigsaw puzzle, because people might listen to me and go, well, here, how do I see that in action today. Well, if you go on to New Idea or to bhd.com.au, you see it. If you go on to Perth Now and the West.com.au, you see it. Now, those two brands are fast growing and big, but the where you'll see it next year is in the uh, arrival of Seven News, uh, the new Seven News product. So now that we've signaled that we're selling our 50% of Yahoo 7 to Oath, uh, early next year, we'll launch a brand new best-in-class news service that will actually be a much more visible uh, incarnation of that whole strategy coming to place. But that will be early next year. So do you think you held on to the Yahoo 7 joint venture for too long? What was it about 2018 that made the unwinding of it the right time? So uh, Tim, Angus, Kurt and I have been working together three years and, and really it was all the thing about the strategy was making sure that we could um, effectively move audiences across our products, get a good return on investment for our shareholders in a fair and reasonable amount of time. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, changing market conditions. So we were very optimized around the joint venture. But if you go back in the history, we were launched our sports products first with tennis and Olympics. Then we worked on our Pacific brands. More recently, we worked with our news brands in WA. And then we came back to live and long-form VOD. And in the final piece of that digital puzzle will be short-form news and articles that will come on next year. So this has been a three-year approach to uh, bring back our content in-house, if you like, but in a way that make the most sense for our shareholders rather than a, uh, a sort of a big bang because the EI7 joint venture still to this day it remains incredibly profitable and therefore transitioning an audience and advertisers and uh, profitability for shareholders in through a period of three years is a, it's a fair and reasonable uh, thing to do rather than some big bang uh, reveal. And that's what we've done. Yeah. We'd like to think we probably got the timing right. It wasn't possible to do it all at once. Uh, well, 
it, it may have been possible, but it was not the most sensible approach. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've taken a staggered approach to it and we feel as though that's working very well for us. Certainly if we look at the growth of 7+, plus, um, we feel as though we got that long-form piece um, absolutely spot on. Yeah, and Yahoo 7's audience is circa about 10 million um, Australians a month that you use Yahoo 7. A 7's audience, excluding Yahoo 7, now is 5 million. Go back three years, Yahoo 7's audience was 10 million, and 7's audience was zero. So we've gone from zero to 5 million, and we've maintained 10 million audience over there. And that's really the job. You know, it's um, not enough focus goes on that, but actually uh, working out how uh, audiences and advertisers navigate your advertising and product ecosystem is really important. Tim, you know that this industry loves to gossip and it's really escalated since you've started to unwind the Yahoo 7 venture in that people will say 7 wants to get rid of pack mags and people have been saying that to me for a really long time and that drumbeat has almost gotten louder since the Yahoo 7 undoing was announced. What's your response to that? Does 7 want pack mags We absolutely uh value Pacific greatly Um, and Jared and his team have done an incredible job in the last couple of years of turning that business around Um, and in fact I'm over there one day a week at the moment working with that team because it's the one floor of our new building that's complete Um, and that team that group of people is now working in a uh, in a new way and in a very good way in an open plan space that's waiting for all of us uh, over the next um, few months. Um, we don't want to get rid of Pacific. That's um, a ridiculous notion. We greatly value them. And, and I think that um, the brands that we have there now at Pacific, all of them are complemented exceptionally well by our television business. And we're all very much looking forward to working under the one roof. And I think we're going to be able to see even better results from that group of people than we're seeing at the moment. But just to be clear, um, they have turned that business around um, and it is performing as well now um, as it has done in recent times. Obviously, we've got the Nine and Fairfax deal it could go through and what we're looking at with nine and what they promoted for a long time is themselves as an entertainment company with lots of different assets so if the fairfax deal goes through they'll have domain they'll have svod bvod digital and publishing assets i'm wondering what does seven west media define itself as uh we're a content company we're a storytelling organization that's what we do um we tell stories across our company um you know we've got the newspapers in Western Australia um, and their online offerings. We have a chain of regional radio stations in Western Australia that not many people know about on this side of the country, very successful, uh, the Red Wave team. We have um, our two television businesses. So there's the broadcast network that is uh, the number one network in the country and, as I say, has its highest share in history um, to any season uh, to date. Um, we have seven studios. So we're quite different from uh, our competitors, traditional television competitors, insofar as we're also the largest producer of television programming in Australia. Um, that business has now um, spread its wings and has production companies in London and in Los Angeles and in Auckland um, and is growing the amount of hours that it produces uh, each year. We have Pacific um, that we just covered as well. And then we have Seven West Ventures, which has um, shareholdings in businesses like Health Engine and and Airtasker. So that's Seven West Media, um, quite diverse. Um, We're very happy with where we are. Um, We're obviously still looking at uh, what's possible out there in the media landscape uh, for Seven West Media, but we're happy with the way that we are. And Tim, one final one from me, both yourself and Seven became sort of tabloid fodder in 2016. Looking forward to 2020, what would you want the headlines about Channel 7 to be? What do you want people to be talking about when it comes to Seven in two years' time? 
just what um, I've, I've covered there, we're a content company. That's, uh, that's what we do. We're, we're a storytelling organisation and whether that's uh, in live sport, which is the, you know, we would regard as the purest form of theatre, uh, or whether that's in Seven News or Sunrise or whether it's in a Pacific title or the West Australian, the Sunday Times, Perth Now, or on a red wave radio station in Broome. Um, we're a storytelling organisation telling Australian stories uh, and doing it very successfully. All right. Tim, Angus, Kurt, Clive and Zoe, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. So that wraps up this week's episode of Mumbrella Cast. Thanks for listening and speak to you next time.